0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua. Today, in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy will remind us that the theme of the Book of Romans is the gospel, and will discuss some reasons that people are ashamed of the gospel. I would like you to turn your Bibles to be placed in the Book of Romans, Chapter One.
1: And our text is going to be Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let us read the section we've been reading for the past several Sunday evenings, so that you'll see the continuity of thought that the Apostle Paul has in this section. Let's begin at verse number 8. Paul writes, and he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Make and request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you. That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. No, I would not have you ignorant, my brethren, that oft times I, pur- I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto or was hindered thereto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to the Greek And to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Then we come to our text. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse number 16 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul moves to a a new section in this first chapter. The Apostle Paul is now going to announce the theme of the epistle. And of course, that theme is none other than the gospel. If you've been following what we've been preaching on Sunday nights, you'll notice that in chapters 1 and verses 1 to 6, the Apostle Paul makes some very general statements about his calling and his commission as an apostle. Then from verse number 7 to verse number 15, the Apostle Paul speaks of himself and also deals with his relationship with the Christians in Rome. Now he's finished with those formalities, the Apostle Paul now shifts and moves and glides into his major theme. And so in verse number 16, he moves to the topic that he's going to deal with and expound with throughout the epistle, which has to do with the gospel. So I believe, therefore, that when we come to verse 16 and verse 17, we've come to what I call an important transition. Even though the Apostle Paul does not do any fanfare or any flourish, He just simply glides into his topic. You notice that he uses the word again and again. uh, What you might call a connective conjunction. It's the word for. Look at your text again. He says in verse 16, for what? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on, he says, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And then in verse number 17, he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Using the word for, the apostle Paul is showing you that what he's saying is connected to what has proceeded. But also using the word for again and again, three times in these two verses, Paul wants us to understand that what he's doing, he is logically presenting his theme one step at a time. And uh, therefore there is a very close Connection between these two verses. And uh, in verse number 16, he takes his theme. In verse number 17, the Apostle Paul expands or the Apostle Paul gives an exposition in greater details of what he says in verse number 16. You know, it is interesting when you look at the Apostle Paul's style and method. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul is always logical. He always marshals his facts, presents his facts. And you find the Apostle Paul always leads from step to step. He, this is a, he's always a one that reasons with people. He's always appealing to the mind. He never really targets the emotions. That is always the biblical method. Never forget that. See. I've emphasized it again and again. I want to say it again. Any man that goes directly at your emotion, he rapes your emotions. And I want to say to you, he's vulgar when he does that. See. He must always appeal to your mind. And when you understand the truth, the ch- truth then appeals to your emotion. But anytime I begin to appeal to your emotion, I know what I'm doing, I'm manipulating you. see. But I can only do that for a short space of time. If the truth doesn't sink into the soul, no matter what emotions you have at that moment, they disappear very very quickly, like they do when the sun rises in the morning.. See, But that was not Paul's method. It's always logical, always sequential. Now I've mentioned to you before that there are rare occasions. When the Apostle Paul is so overwhelmed by the truth he's presenting, that the Apostle Paul breaks into a sudden piano of praise, and he goes into what you might call a doxology. And then he catches himself, and he goes back to his topic. You can't help that. Truth does that to you, see. This was Paul's supreme method. So he's logical, he's a thinker, and the a person that is presenting precept upon precept, line upon line. And this is what he does. In this particular section. Now you remember in the book of Acts. When we meet the apostle Paul. On his missionary journeys. And you read that. Uh, you read these words. That he reasoned with the Jews. Alleging and proving that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't get in some emotional battle with them. He was always taking biblical truth. Presented that biblical truth. And saying to them. Logically. This is who Christ is. It's a marvel how the apostle Paul. And we must learn from him in this regard. So in verse 16, he announces his theme. In verse 17, he expounds his theme. And then in verse number 18 and following, he works out that theme in more greater details. Now I want to say something else uh, about these two verses. I want to say to you that these are probably two of the greatest verses in the Bible in terms of church history. And I'll tell you why. These are the verses that are responsible for what is called the Protestant Reformation. It is these two verses that changed the world. It is these two verses that brought a monk called Martin Luther, trying to find God, that allowed him to find God. It was his understanding of these two verses, that today, you and I are Christian. Think about it, there was no Reformation. Where would you be today, my friend? There'd be no missionaries. There'd be no churches that would send people around the world. But because he came to an understanding of these two verses and profoundly understood what they meant, it broke down his Catholicism that kept him in darkness for so many years. And he realized that what was needed was Christ and Christ's righteousness and that alone would satisfy God. These are wonderful verses and we need to realize how important they are in terms of the context of church history. But subsequently to Martin Luther, these verses were also the turning point In other people's life. Like John Wesley. It was while reading the Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. That he himself heard these verses. And suddenly he said. I just felt something had happened to me. And Wesley was changed. Remember Wesley was traveling on the seas. Going to America to preach the gospel. And uh, what disturbed Wesley is that when he was on a boat. He met the Moravians. And there's a boat, there's a storm, the, the, the boat is about to, to, to sink and Wesley is panicking but the Moravians are singing. And he knew one thing, they had something he didn't have. And so he was wondering, what did he have? They had that he didn't have. And then it was only when he heard the reading of these, the, the introduction, the preface to, to Luther's Romans that finally it dawned on him. What they had was the security that they were in Christ and Christ's righteousness. He was depending on his own righteousness. And suddenly, presto, the light opened. And he too was won by these two verses. So I am saying to you, these verses are the bottom, the rock bottom and the foundation, of the Protestant reformation. And uh, it is these verses that are against the Catholicism that exalts sacraments. They got seven sacraments and each sacrament gives you grace. And Luther believed that for a number of years. By taking the communion, by doing penance. All of these things are supposed to make Luther teach. But then he realized these things don't offer peace. They keep me in darkness. They can't save. And then he saw those verses and he realized that not his good works, not his good deeds, not his self-effort could ever give him a right standing before God. And so these are critical verses and important verses when it comes to evangelism. And I want to say to you, If you don't understand these verses and get a clear grasp of these two verses and you attempt to do evangelism, either your message will be wrong or your method will be wrong. These are crucial verses when it comes to the whole matter of soul winning and evangelism. And so uh, I want to begin to look at these verses and I want to just point out a few things about these verses. We just stay with verse 16 tonight. If not, we get all of verse number 16. The first thing that strikes me Is the unusual and extraordinary way in which Paul puts those words in verse sixteen. Notice what he says: "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." You ever ask yourself why does he put it this way? What is he trying to say here in this verse? Now, if you're one that want to find out what the kind of figure of speech that Paul is using here, the the, theologians tell us that Paul is using what is called a litotes. No, you've never heard that word before. Let me tell you what a laitotis is, okay? <laughs> a laitotis is when you make an assertion in the form of a negative, when you really make the very opposite, you mean the positive. For example, one of the things that I hear young people saying is, that bad, man. You know, and I couldn't understand for why, Man, that is bad. What do you mean that's cool? That's good. So even though I say that bad, negative, that bad means good. See, This is a figure of speech. So when Paul says here, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What the apostle Paul means is saying, I am proud of the gospel. What he's saying is, I glory in the gospel. I boast in the gospel. And by the way, he did the same exact thing in the book of Acts. You remember, there was an occasion when the apostle Paul found himself in great conflict. And then we're told that the Roman Legion, when they realized that the Apostle Paul could be killed, he sent his troops to deliver the Apostle Paul to save him. And when they came to save the Apostle Paul, they entered into conversation, and they asked Paul, you know, where where are you from? You remember what Paul said? I am from no mean city. And what are you saying? I'm from Tarsus. Tarsus is one of the university centers in the the, uh, eastern world. So when Paul says, I am from no mean city, what Paul means uh, I am from a very important city. See? He's using the same form here of litotes, using the negative when in actual fact, you mean the positive. It's just a figure of speech that draws your attention to it. Right? It's just like a metaphor, or simile, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, 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 the apostle Paul is using this method, this form, quite distinctly with respect to the gospel. And he's using it very deliberately. And I believe he's doing it because he wants to help these Roman believers. You see, even in the first century, there were people who professed to be Christians. But who, in a real sense, were embarrassed to call themselves Christians. By the way, it seems clear when you look at the life of Timothy and Paul dealing with Timothy, that even Timothy was a little guilty of this. You remember what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8? He said these words, be thou therefore not ashamed of the testimony of Christ, or he goes on to say of, of me, the prisoner. See? He sensed that Timothy was somewhat avoiding him. He was in prison, and, and he's writing to me, he said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be, he, he, sensed that there was a, a smidgen of shame in Timothy. You remember also that when he wrote concerning in the same book, 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 16, And he's talking about a man called Onesiphorus. Remember the, the, the greatest compliment that he could give to Onesiphorus is these words. He said these words. He sought me out very diligently and found me. And he oft refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. You see there were other people who knew that Paul was in chains in Rome. But they didn't want to go to the prison to say, I identify with Paul's cause. I associate with Paul. But Paul said, this young man sought me out. And the reason why, and he did me many favors. And the reason why, he was not ashamed of my chains. So shame is not something new. It was something that the first century church was faced with. And I believe that when the apostle Paul is writing, even though he said, I boast. In the gospel, he puts it in this form because he is aware there's an element of shame about the gospel. And he wants to help these believers to deliver them for what he called the spirit of fear. And so that they would have a proper understanding of the gospel. Now, this brings me to one question. Why would anybody ever be ashamed of the gospel? Now, that seems to me to be a very, very important question. And I regard to say to you that there are people who would boast and say, Pastor, I've never been ashamed of the gospel. I want to say to you, you've never understood the gospel if you say that. Because if a man truly understands the gospel and what the gospel teaches and how the gospel humiliates man, see, it doesn't exalt man. It brings man down to the point where man is totally helpless before God. It knocks all of his pride out of him. It tells him he has no hope. It tells him he's lost. It tells him he's damned. It tells him that he's a sinner. It tells him he's going to hell. When you preach the gospel and you understand the gospel, you understand the offense of the gospel. And a man like the apostle Paul, when he preached, and any man that really preaches the gospel, it offends people. So I want to say to you, I think it's a very important question concerning this matter. Why is the gospel offensive to the believer? Now, read the lives of the saints over the centuries. And you will find how many of them have had a struggle in this area at some point in their lives. Either being intimidated by their constituency. Uh, either it was the king or it was some kind of a noble or, or some other person. Uh, and, and there was this trepidation, this, and also this sense of embarrassment about the gospel. Now, let me just tonight just take a little bit of time and just talk to you about this, this whole matter. Why the gospel, why people are ashamed of the gospel. Number one, I want to say to you that people find themselves as Christians ashamed of the gospel. Because the world ridicules the gospel. Christians sometimes feel ashamed because as far as the world is concerned, the gospel is nonsense. As far as the world is concerned, the gospel is folly. The gospel is a myth. This was very true in the early days. You remember Paul writing to the Corinthians? He says it very plainly and very bluntly when he says the gospel is a what? Is stumbling block to the Jews and what? Foolishness to the Greeks. Now when he says foolish to the Greeks, he means the cultural individual. The Jew is a religious man. is a stumbling block to him because in his thinking, the Messiah could not be crucified. The Messiah is a great king. But when it comes to the cultural man who has embraced Greek thinking and Greek philosophy and Greek learning... It made no sense to them. When Paul presented the gospel. The Jews hated it. The Greeks hated it. The Romans hated it. And the world has always hated the gospel. And the world will always ridicule the gospel. And you know why the gospel is ridiculed by the world? Because of the message the gospel presents. And what is that message? That message is Christ. And remember, the Christ that the gospel presents is a Christ who was born in abject poverty. He was not born in a palace. He was born in a manger. Remember that this Christ is a Christ that was found in a stable. Remember that this is a Christ that was brought up in a little unknown village called Nazareth. Remind yourself also that this Christ was trained... As a simple carpenter. Not a philosopher. Not a great lawyer. Not a doctor. An ordinary carpenter. Remember also. That this Christ. Was a Christ that was crucified. In apparent weakness. But yet this is the same Christ. That we present to people saying. That he is the great I am. He is the way. The truth and life. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. See? Now, can, can you see it? the man in the world saying, "But wait a minute! How can a carpenter with no pedigree, born in a manger, uh, how could now he be the great I am? How could he be the great shepherd? How could he be the, the true vine? How could he be the, the way, the truth, the life? How could he be the bread?" Man, you're talking nonsense. See, that's how the world views this gospel. See? It always ridicules the gospel. And I want to say to you, imagine that Paul is preaching this gospel to Rome. And when they ask the question, what did you say about this one? How did he die? He was crucified. And the Romans said, we crucified him. So how can he be our Lord? How can he be our Savior? We crucified him. We put him on the cross. Are you talking about he being a Savior? It makes absolute no sense to the world. That a man... Of this genealogy. This pedigree. See, this upbringing. See, that he would actually be the savior of the world. And I want to remind you this evening. That when a man was crucified. He was only crucified because of the common criminal. No Roman could ever be crucified. It was restricted. It was reserved for the worst criminal. So you are telling me a criminal on the cross. Dying on the cross. You remember what the people said? When he was crucified, how they mocked him and laughed and jeered at him, said he saved others, tell him come down and save himself and show that he's a Christ. I'm saying to you, he still jeered today. He is still ridiculed today. He is still seen as one a weak, he is still seen as one crucified, he is still seen as the non entity from Nazareth, he is still seen as a babe in a manger, with no royalty as it were. is seen as the one of weakness. And the cross to the world is seen nothing but a myth and a hoax. Let me put it another way. The world ridicules the gospel because the gospel is not a philosophy. The world never ridicules a philosophy. The world loves philosophy. But because the gospel is a simple presentation of concrete historical truth. The world loves abstract truth. Truth that is above the head of the ordinary man. But truth that the ordinary man, just like the scholar, can find and believe, the world can't take that. That song's too simple. They want something very profound. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. But he understood that here are the people living in Rome. And he senses that they're ashamed of that gospel that he presents. You recall there's an incident of this, of how human pride gets in the way of the simple gospel. You remember in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens. You remember when the apostle Paul gets up to speak? You remember what they say? What shall this babbler say? (laughs) And when he got up to speak, Paul began to talk about Christ and Christ's death and Christ's crucifixion. And the whole thing got messed up. Everything, they just had to be done with that. Be done with it. Party broke up. Meeting broke up. This man is a setter forth of strange doctrine. We never heard anything like this. A crucified man. Man, tell us about Aristotle. Tell us about Plato. Tell us about Pythagoras. Do you come here with this nonsense about a man who died and was crucified and he's my savior? <laughs> Listen. It said that Paul was mocked. And out of that incident, only two people got saved. And you find that Paul leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth and he's so depressed. See, So depressed. But you remember why it turned out the way it did? Go back to that section and find that when he got to Athens, you find that when Paul is speaking, the audience are two groups. they call called the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now you've got Epicurean over there. But you know why they call it Epicurean? The Epicureans were a philosophy that believed that the highest good was pleasure. That's why the word Epicureans used pleasure. Come over there and buy everything you want. I'll fill you. I'll fill your belly. I'll fill your tummy. I'll fill you to the mouth. That's why they used the word Epicurean. It, it has to do with the philosophy of pleasure. The stoic system was the very opposite of that. They believed that you, you, the highest good was just to grin your teeth and bear it and tough it out and don't give in to the flesh. But Paul didn't preach that. Paul bought, preached Christ. And Christ crucified. And they said nonsense. Tell us about pleasure. Tell us about being astern. So, tell us about something we got to do man. Do. Paul said it's already done. The cross says it's already done. See, The world is ashamed of the gospel. And believer is ashamed of the gospel. Because the world ridicules that gospel. And I believe the apostle Paul understood very clearly. Of the danger of being in a place like Rome. And the believer is ashamed of him. And ashamed of his gospel. So that's the first thing I would like to say. Secondly. I want to point out to you. The reason why I believe also that people are ashamed of the gospel. It's not only because the world ridicules the gospel. But number two. Often we are ashamed of the gospel. Because of our location. The place where we are. And the place where we are kind of sets the, the tone and the ambience and the atmosphere of how, if we feel comfortable or not comfortable or hostile or acceptable or affable. I want to remind yourself that these believers are in Rome. And what is Rome? Rome is the great mistress of the world. Rome is the imperial city. Rome is the seat of world government. Rome is the capital. Of the then world. Rome is the place where they got the pantheon of gods. There is Zeus. There is Cupid with his arrow. There is Venus, the god of love. I mean, we got our own gods. See? We got these gods. And you come here to tell us about a, a man that was crucified on a cross. Dead man. We put him on the cross. Are you telling us we must now turn around and believe in him that he's the savior? No, it was the atmosphere, the ambience in Rome that was so pressuring these believers that they had a sense of, sh- of shameness. And Paul has to write to deal with this matter. But also remember that Rome is where all the great people came from. Why do people go to New York and London and Paris? Rome is like the London and Paris and New York of, of those days where all the great people would be. But of all the people you come and talk about, it's a stupid little galleon for a place we don't know. Tell us about great men. See? But Paul didn't come to talk about great men. He came to talk about a crucified Christ. See? And that must have been terribly embarrassing. See? It all had to do with the place. And remember that Rome was also the place of pomp and ceremony. See? The splendor of the imperial palaces were there. And Rome was known for its historians, its taxitas. It's also known for its poets and also for dramatists and those who do theatrics. And then, of course, you know about Roman philosophers. See. Man, tell us about somebody important. See. And Paul was aware of this. This deep sense of the ridicule of the gospel, this deep sense of living in an imperial city and uh, feeling completely intimidated by all the glory and the splendor that surrounds them. And so they attempted to be mute and silent about the gospel. And Paul says to them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You shouldn't be either. See, That's what Paul is saying to these believers. Now, if you were to use your imagination. I want to suggest to you that the biggest joke on the night talk shows in Rome. Was about this, this Jew. Who was just a tent maker. Come down here to Rome to tell us about some stupid Jew from some place we don't even know. And telling us that he got killed, he got crucified. And guess what? He's telling us he's our savior. Man, I can see these fellas making jokes. About it. Court jesters would make fun of that. When they had drama in theater. That must be the biggest joke in Rome. And I will tell you one thing. Nobody likes to be laughed at. And nobody likes to be ridiculed. And nobody likes that what they believe on is so demeaned. So you see the problem? The apostle Paul said to them, look, I'm not ashamed of God. And he does that for a deliberate reason. He could have said, I boast in the gospel. He's saying the same thing. But he puts it in this format because he's aware that in Rome, there's this sense of embarrassment. And that brings me to the third thing. People are ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reverses the ideas of the world in every respect. Could I say something to you? The gospel is not in line with any other teaching you will ever find. The gospel is absolutely on its own and it is different from anything that anyone has ever presented. You can stand and say tonight. That the most untutored person. The most illiterate person in the world. Can listen to the same gospel as the greatest intellect in the world. And by grace through faith be saved. We can say that. And that reverses the whole thinking of the world. You mean to tell me that a little four year old child. Can listen to this gospel you present and Believe and be saved? And you mean to tell me that I could present this gospel to a man like Einstein? And this same Einstein could believe the same thing and be saved? Yes. And the world said, does not make sense? That's too simple for me. That's too simple. I'm saying to you, it is a complete reversal of the world's System and thinking. And what it does. It puts everybody exactly on the same level. A common level. It does not glory in the intellect. It does not glory in man's moral efforts. And it does not glory in human striving. It tells you from the very beginning. That you can do as much as you like. As long as you like. As often you like. And it still won't help you. That's the gospel. No matter what you do. You simply to the cross I came with nothing in my hands I bring. That's the gospel. So the gospel says to you from the very beginning. You can try and try and do and do and do and pray and read and do it. And the gospel says when it's all done. You're still nowhere. Because the gospel is a simple thing about faith in God. It's nothing about what you do. It's about what God has done for you. See, see? It reverses the entire thinking of the world. See? And you can see why people would be embarrassed about that. As a matter of fact, let me say this to you, my dear friend. The gospel says to you that all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. And all your good things are like dung and trash and refuge. See? It is worth absolutely nothing before God. What matters before God is Christ and what Christ has done, not what you do. See and brother, that's the gospel. See? That's the gospel. And the world sits back and roars <laughs> aloud. Can't believe that. You believe that? You really believe that? That doesn't matter what a man does. Do you know a man can be on death row and be a great murderer? A serial murderer. And a man could come and present and preach the gospel to him. And for a moment, he sees the light and believes and he goes to heaven. Do you know the best man in the world? Who lives the most righteous life and does the greatest deeds. Who hears the gospel and believes not in the gospel, but believes in his own good works. Do you know that man going to hell? Don't tell me, does that make sense to any, any man in the world? Does that makes sense? The gospel overturns. Every simple idea, you find it there. It is unique. There's nothing like it in the world. But thank God, it is true. Thank God, it is true, my dear friend. Thank you. Thank God. Now, I want to say something to you tonight about this matter. I believe this matter of the offense of the gospel... And the hatred of the gospel is one of the greatest tests of whether man is really preaching the true gospel or not. See? What we are hearing today, I want to say to you, is not the gospel. I want to make that abundantly clear. What you see on television is not the gospel. See? By the way, I was in um, Nevis last week, as you know, preaching <laughs> and After I finished preaching, the guy was taking me home, and I was in the back of his car, and he has a a son, maybe a 15-year-old boy. And the little boy asked me some questions. He said, Pastor, you got a dog? I said, yeah, I got a dog. What kind of dog? I told him what kind of dog. So so I just casual talking. Then he said to me, Pastor, what kind of car do you drive? That's the first question. I said, is it a big car? You know, in his mind, he's seeing these TV evangelists. So he said, I thought you belonged to a big church, you got a big car. I said, oh God, you mean a little boy like that? That's how he thinks about the gospel. But that's what the gospel has been reduced to. What car you drive? You got a million dollar home, you got a private plane somewhere? Do you have a television program? That's what people, that is what has been, and we have insulted God by bringing it down to that level. And I said to myself in my mind, I can't believe, I didn't tell him that, I can't believe that that's how he's seeing preachers. What car you drive? He asked me nothing about the message. All he wanted to know, what car you drive? How big it is. I told him I drove the church van and that stopped him up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Stop him immediately. He had another question. Don't we? <laughs> Let me say today, and I'm very serious about this, people are presenting an inoffensive gospel. One of the things that they do sometimes, they're presenting Christ as this great hero, this great example to be followed. You know? now, if you lift up this great example to follow, that is, humans like that. So, he's a great hero. He's, you know, just, he's an example. Follow example. That's not the gospel. I repeat, that is not the gospel. And then when that doesn't work, they say, you know, follow this Christ because he has the most beautiful teaching in the world, the Sermon on the Mount. They say that it is a masterpiece of social justice and equality. Who doesn't like that kind of lingo? And then the worst of all is this. They're preaching today, come to Jesus because you solve all your personal problems. I want to say to you That is not the gospel either You see Christ has presented this great Super psychologist And all your personal emotional problems Do you have a problem with worry? Are, are you depressed? Are you in trouble? Do you need a friend? Do you want joy? Do you want happiness? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be prosperous? And Listen when you tell people that, they go after it. But let me tell you something. It is not the gospel. See? And I want to say to you, the greatest test that a man is preaching the gospel is that after you preach it, people are offended by it. And if they're not offended by the gospel, I want to say to you, it is not the right gospel. It's something else. It's a substitute. And a very poor substitute as that. See? And I say that to say this. That what the gospel does, is that it first of all, it says to every man, he is under condemnation. The gospel says to you when it meets you, not that you're a good person, or you're a lovely person, or that God, you know, that God is this psychologist that solve it. No, what the gospel says to you, sir, that you are lost. You know what it means? It means that God has a way, and you missed the way a long time. You're far away from God. That's what it means. The gospel says to you that you're hopeless. What that means? It means that no matter what you have, all you own, all your intellect, all your resources, all your gifts, all your talent, everything you have, it can't help you. See, you're hopeless. The gospel says to you that you are not a nice person, that you're a rebel. Did you hear what I said? You're a rebel. See, you're not a nice person. And I always tell people that. You will always know when God is convicting you. You know how I tell people that? When God is convicting you, He makes you feel that you're the worst person on planet earth. That is when you have conviction. But when you are going through a service and you're feeling good about yourself and and you know you're not good because you've got to live with your thoughts and what you do. But the gospel always disturbs your equilibrium. It unsettles you. It rattles you. It shakes you. The gospel. The gospel says to you that you are guilty before God. It was not a mistake you made. It was not an error. It was a willful thing you did that God said is sin. You're guilty. The gospel says that. Which man on planet earth likes to be told he's guilty? It offends. And then the gospel says to you, sir, in this condition, you are in great danger. And that great danger is not leaving the church and a bus knocking you down. That great danger, sir, is that if you leave this world tonight without Jesus Christ, you are going to a place called hell. And you will be there eternally. The gospel says that to you. And which man likes to be told he's going to hell? It offends. Totally offends. And then the gospel tells us one of the things that when you reach the point in your life where you realize you're hopeless, you're lost, there's nothing you can do. Then the the gospel says to you, look away from yourself and look to the one hanging there. He did everything for you. The work is done, it is finished, and all you got to do now is what? Believe. That's the gospel. But listen to me, it is so simple that great minds stumble over it because they want to know what must I do. What must I do to be saved, Paul? And Paul said what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But I want to say one last thing about this gospel. This gospel also teaches that the moment... You turn to God from your sin and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That this very God now puts some person in your life called the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit cleans you up from the inside out. That you are now a new creature. A new creation. You are a different person from that moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. The Bible says all things are passed away Before all things have become new That sir also I want to say is the gospel That does not offend the world It offends Christians Because when you tell a man he's different Or a woman he's different from the time he got saved And they continue to live in their sin And you tell them there got to be something wrong If you could continue living in your sin They get offended by that see. But the gospel says that you transform You change You move out of one kingdom to the other And you're never the same again. Once you know Jesus Christ is Savior. And every single person in here who has had an encounter like that knows what I'm talking about. You are not the same person you were before you got saved. You know it. Why? Something miraculous took place. When you put your faith and trust in Christ. You're a new creature. You're born again. Sir, that and that alone is the gospel. And it turns the entire world of thinking because it is so unique. So they're ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed of the place where it is with all this greatness and all this glory and all this pomp. They're ashamed of the gospel because it reverses the complete thinking of the world. And I want to say to you, with the Apostle Paul, get a grasp of this. And when you fully and freely understand it, hold on to it and listen like Paul says when he said, I'm not ashamed. Boast in it. Glory in it. You remember what he said? God forbid that I should glory save in Christ and Christ at the cross and Christ crucified. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Present it. Believe it. And don't be intimidated by the voices around you because it's the only means of human redemption and man's change This gospel and this gospel alone So I ask a question Why be ashamed of it If it is such a glorious truth In terms of changing man and transforming man I want to encourage you To continue with me as I continue the book of Romans And uh, we'll pick up the other section of it next week But brethren Don't be ashamed of the gospel you fellas in school, this young man here was so proud to hear that his mother's learning from him about the, the, the gospel. But I want to ask you another question. Do your friends know that too? See? Oh, praise the Lord. See? Praise the Lord. See? And I will tell you this once a person can tell their parents and their family, normally they can tell anybody. Because the hardest people to speak to is your family. You know that? You know that? Or you don't know that. I don't know if you know that. I found that to be so. But I want to commend the young man that he's not ashamed to share his faith. And I want to challenge you to follow in that pattern. And like the Apostle Paul,
0: let us not be ashamed of this gospel. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the reasons that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.